Hey, well, good morning, Arbor. Oh, I love how you respond. Thank you. Hey, uh, my name is Jake, and if you brought your Bible today, hey, you can go ahead and pull it out. You can uh, bring out your phone. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1. That's where we'll be spending the majority of our time uh, today. Uh, I'll start off with a little, uh, a little um, I, gotta, I guess I can call it an episode that I went through years and years ago. When I was in uh, third grade, I uh, had an accident. Um, and the accident had to do with baseball. I told you a couple weeks ago, I'm not a big fan of baseball, but I played it for a long period of time. And uh, when I was about uh, in third grade, uh, we just moved from uh, t-ball, underhand pitch to overhand. And we were at practice, and we were practicing. I remember Mike was pitching. I remember Travis, probably the strongest guy I'd ever met, biggest guy on our team, was hitting, and I was the, the lowly catcher. And we were just figuring this thing out, and Mike must have thrown a high ball because my instinct was to stand up with my mitt and try to catch it. When I did that, I got hit with the aluminum bat right between my eyes. Really hard. So hard that it just it knocked me out. I was done. I don't remember anything. My dad explained that he saw the whole thing, ran, ran over to me. Uh, my head was bleeding profusely, so he stuck his thumb inside of my head to stop the bleeding. Head wounds go nuts. Uh, at that point in time, they thought I'd better get this guy to a hospital. This was before cell phones, so you couldn't exactly call the ambulance, and the, and the school was closed at that time. And so they got, um, they got me into a car. We took the car. We were driving as fast as we could, uh, but apparently we took the wrong car uh, because once they got in the car and on the road, they realized they're out of gas. And so we had to stop at a gas station to get filled up so I could get to the hospital. I don't remember any of this part. The part I did find out, though, is when we pulled in, uh, there was a police car. God was on our side. There was a police car inside of, uh, like, getting gas as well. So apparently they just grabbed me, showed me to the police officer, and then they put me in his back seat. Um, I wasn't convicted of any crimes. I was just in there because I was hurt. Um, this is what I do remember. I came and came to at this point, and I remember thinking, oh, my God gosh, I'm in a police car. This is like every boy's dream, except for the fact that at that point, my eyes were actually dried shut because of the blood. So I couldn't see anything. Like I couldn't see anything. My face was just this bloody mess. They finally got to the hospital. Uh, they stitched me up. Um, I'm not sure if there was any long-term damage or not. I'll leave that up to you guys. But the damage I did incur was the next day. So this was, you know, back in the day when my parents like, well, you got hit in the head with a bat, you're going to school the next day. So I went to school, and I just need to tell you, I, I asked my mom for a picture. She said she didn't have one. I don't know why they didn't take a picture. It's because they didn't have phones to take pictures with. But apparently I had two black eyes. My face was all mangled, and I had like this dot that looked like a spider web in the middle of my forehead. Um, and I went there, and the reason I remember that more than anything else is because of how people treated me when I got there. My friends, I look like a nightmare, something out of a horror movie, and my friends wouldn't talk to me. Went out to recess, I wanted to play, when doing the normal thing, and they just shunned me. They pushed me away. They didn't want to have anything to do with me. Um, I remember trying to talk to new people, whatnot. I didn't remember just being on the playground by myself. They started calling me Spider-Face. I thought that was not very original. Could have called me Spider-Man because of the thing on my forehead, whatever. Um, but I just remember being an outsider. That was the first time I had truly experienced 
hey, they want nothing to do with me. They're here, that's where I want to be, and I'm being on the outside, and I'm not involved, and they're not in bringing me in. And I remember that feeling, and I have to imagine that just about every single person here has experienced that type of feeling, the feeling of being on the outside. What's really cool about when Jesus said, let's go and make disciples, um, that's our com- that was our commission, that's our purpose here at this church, to go and make disciples together, but he also showed us how. And how he showed us when he modeled it for us was actually through going to the outsiders, the outcasts, those on the outside. Jesus, in their day, it was tax collectors, lepers, demon-possessed. It was the Samaritans. Um, And what he did is he loved the outsiders by inviting them in. And that's kind of our whole point. That's our whole premise of this series. That's why we're doing it. Bob eloquently said last week that what we're trying to do, this is kind of a, a, a stop for a moment and, um, and regroup and then head back on out. Because this church, it is not about what we're doing right now. It's not about Sundays. This is not the, this is not the show. Um, this is where we come to be trained to go out to do the real ministry that happens every single day in our normal lives. And what Jesus modeled for us and what our hope is, is that we would love outsiders by inviting them in. Not just inviting them into this church, but to invite them into a relationship with Jesus. Invite them into the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus did. That's what we want to do. So as a church, whether age, race, gender, theology, background, education, ethnicity, stitches, no stitches, We want to love outsiders by inviting them in. That's what we want to be. We want to be that loving. And so that's our goal. So today, we're going to jump out of a passage or jump into a passage in Mark. Uh, He's one of the gospel writers. His name's actually John Mark. Um, He's not one of the 12 disciples. Uh, He actually is a cousin to Barnabas and later helped with the first missionary journey with Barnabas and Paul. But we believe, at least theologians believe, that the information that he got to write the gospel, to write the gospel that he wrote, which is also known as the action uh, gospel because Mark's all about action inside of his gospel. Um, We feel like he was pals with Peter, that he got a lot of the information that he had from the firsthand account from Peter. And so let's read that passage together. It's basically Mark chapter one, verses 40 through 45. Here's what it says. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus, and I love this, reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he said, be clean. Instantly, the the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. Then Jesus sent him away with a strong warning Don't tell anybody about this, but go show yourself to the priests and offer sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as as a testimony to them. Instead, the man went out and began to talk freely, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town publicly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet, people from everywhere, kept coming to him. Let's pray. Jesus, as we get started in this thing, I pray that your presence would rest in this place. 
May we all, myself included, have ears to hear your message today. Speak to us so that we know clearly not just what to do, not just what to believe, but we know who you are. We love you, Lord. In your name, amen. Now, before we jump into the passage and break it down kind of verse by verse, we probably got to talk a little bit about leprosy. Because uh, I got to imagine that if I were to ask you to show of hands how many of you have had leprosy before, uh, there would not be that many hands that would be raised. I don't think there'd be any hands that would be raised. Uh, it's not like the cold. It's not like a flu. It's not like the chicken pox around here. It's not commonly experienced today in age. But in the first century, this disease was much more common. And here's what you need to know about leprosy. If you had it, it defined your life. If you got it, if you contracted it, it defined your life. Leprosy defined his life. This guy in the Bible, it defined his life. Luke is another gospel writer. What he tells us, he kind of, he's a doctor, he's a physician. He kind of gives us some medical perspective in his account by saying that he was full of, this man was covered or a, an advanced case of leprosy. And in and, and my studying this week, I definitely learned that it's more than a rash, It's not just a rash. We know now that this disease comes into our body through things like sneezing, kissing, drinking, sharing a drink, and it slowly, catch this, this is crazy, it slowly kills you from the inside out is what it does. It literally takes over your nervous system, your nervous system. And so what will happen is you will lose finger or you'll lose feeling in your extremities. And it's not that these things start to fall off. What happens is that they start to get hurt or injured and you don't notice it. You don't feel a pain. In fact, one of the greatest things a leper can feel is pain because once you lose that feeling and then all of a sudden it gets injured or something happens, that's why most lepers you see in the pictures, they don't have fingers, they've lost toes. Some of them even lose their nose. Um, There's skin deformity. Uh, The pain like develops very, very, very slowly. Uh, Your voice starts to go because it'll attack your vocal cords and eventually you'll end up becoming blind through leprosy. It was back then essentially incurable. Nowadays, it's curable or at least it can be treated. But back then, it was incurable. I would put it back more to in like the 90s when AIDS came out and the the pandemic of that, like what do we do? We can't stop this. Back then it was the same thing. It was huge. And I truly thought, you guys, I thought about showing pictures to put them on the screen. But when I started to look at the pictures, I'm like, we can't do that. That takes it too far. That's like, I mean, it's really, they're really difficult to look at. Very difficult. Uh, Josephus, he is a, he's a Jewish historian back in Jesus' day. He describes lepers as the walking dead. So, and I don't think he's referring to the, you know, the TV series on Netflix, but, I, but he's saying that they were walking dead. They looked like walking dead people, like zombies, um, and they were treated as such. And because leprosy was, one, super contagious, and two, completely deadly, Literally, God created a Levitical law in the Old Testament for the Jewish people to be able to live by. Here's what it says in Leviticus. It says, the leprous person who has the disease must tear their clothing and leave their hair uncombed. They must cover their mouth and call out, unclean, unclean. 
Now, to the best of our ability, we think that the, uh, that the clothes and the hair, the reason that God would ask for something like that is so that they could be identifiable from a distance, that you could see their ripped clothing, their crazy hair, and go, okay, they have leprosy because they were supposed to keep their distance. What's interesting here is the covering their mouth. I find that crazy and fascinating because if, if this disease is is transferred through sneezing and through, um, you know, nasal secretion is what it, it was the, the technical words. Literally, God created a law back in the day to protect people against this before we knew the principles of microbiology. God knew the principles of microbiology, but they didn't. And yet, so he gave them instructions to cover their mouth if that was the case. I think that's amazing. Now, the hard part about this is that they have to call out unclean, unclean. And the reason for that is you could not, if you acquired leprosy, you could not come within six feet of anybody. And I mean anybody. That includes your family. If you had a family, you could not go and see your family or come within six feet. If it was windy, you actually couldn't come within 150 feet of somebody else. And you had to scream, unclean, unclean. So people knew to get out of your way, to step aside, a leper is coming through. That's the physical part. But I think, honestly, that is the easiest part. The worst part, I would imagine, is the separation. Had to be the separation. The verse goes on in Leviticus. It says, as long as the serious disease lasts, they will be ceremonially unclean. They must live in isolation in their place outside the camp. Try to imagine this, you guys. Try to imagine one day you wake up and you got a rash. That's the, that's the way that it starts. That's the first external sign, if you will. And then literally that's the last time that you can hug your kids. If you had kids at that moment in time and you acquired leprosy and it shows up, you no longer can hug your kids. If you're married, you can't hold their, your spouse's hand. You are immediately pushed to the outside. You are outcast. They actually created leper colonies where all the lepers would gather and they would be together and that would be their spot way outside of where the village was. They would have these camps, these displaced people, true, true outsiders. I would imagine, okay, if you've even watched the, you know, the, the Walking Dead, if you will, that it must have been like being trapped in a nightmare. Like truly being trapped in a nightmare. And there's, you know, not only is there the physical pain, but there's the emotional damage that would come with it. And so here's this man. He's been suffering. We know from Luke's description it's been for a long time. He's basically a dead man walking. He knows there is no cure. There is no getting better. He's not going to be able to see his family or even, or maybe he could see them, but at a distance, or does he even want them to see him? And so he moves into an outcast, an outsider, moves alone with the, you know, for the rest of his life, if truly, honestly, you could call it a life. Until one day, one day he hears about this guy, this miracle man, if you will, who's been going around town, going around the village, and healing various diseases, healing various ailments. And so he thinks it's worth the risk. And so he goes, falls down at Jesus' feet, breaking the law, because he's within six feet of him, and says, Lord, if you're willing, I believe you can make me clean. That's some big faith right there. And I love the part that Jesus reached out, 
and touched him. That part's huge. Don't miss that. And touched him. And from that day forward, when he was clean, he got his life back. Jesus restored his life in that moment. The reason we're doing this series is we know that same, we know that power. It's the power of Jesus. And we want to help restore those who are on the outside into the inside, the kingdom of God. And so let's walk through that passage, starting in verse 40. We'll go verse by verse, word by word, all the way through it. Here's what it says. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Uh, We know from the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, that this happened just after the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is literally coming down from the mountain. This guy approaches him. Uh, This leper jumps up and he falls at his feet and he's completely breaking the law, like I said. He's within six feet of being next to Jesus. And why would he do that? Because this guy, catch this, he's got nothing to lose. Like nothing to lose. What I love, I use this word here, he is desperately hopeful, this phrase, desperately hopeful. Some of us know exactly what that's like, to be desperately hopeful, truly. You're at the end of the rope, you're at the bottom of the barrel, you've emptied yourself. You are emptied either by yourself doing it or by circumstances, and it is in those moments when you're completely empty that God can fill you with faith, because you've got no other option, right? Right? God's got to come through now or it's not going to happen. And you lay it all on out there. Maybe you've tried every other avenue, but you get to this place where you're desperately hopeful. Friends, I think that's an amazing place to be. What's terrible is when we have other options, right? When it comes in and we can, we can go and do this or we can go and do that. Uh, we, don't, we lose that sense of hopefulness. We lose that sense of um, if you will, uh, desire or longing or needing of a savior. And we try to make it on our own. But this guy is desperately hopeful. He has faith that Jesus can heal him. And so he throws himself before Jesus and begs him to help. If you can, you know, like, will you make me clean? I believe that you can. I want you to notice the order of things here. This is super important, especially if you went to church a long time ago and you haven't been back and you're just kind of coming back into things. This guy didn't get cleaned up to come to Jesus. And we don't have to get cleaned up to approach Jesus. That's the huge point. Don't miss it. We don't have to get cleaned up to come to Jesus. Friends, I don't know where that came from. You ever think about that? Why do we have to put on our Sunday best all the time and our best foot forward and put on this show and this facade that we need to be this perfect thing or that perfect thing? We gotta come to church like we've got everything together and we gotta put on this show. <laughs> I don't have it together, newsflash, okay? And I know you don't have it together, newsflash. And so let's stop pretending the whole charade type of thing. We can come, baggage, dirt, everything and all right before Jesus because he allows us to come as you are, that famous hymn. Jesus wants us to come as we are to him. And I think it's crazy that we'd have to get cleaned up to come to him. It's like you're going to have to get fixed up before you go to a doctor, right? You ever call a doctor, hey, I, I got the flu, um, you know, the stomach virus, I broke my leg, you know, my, my left foot is off, you know, kind of thing. And you call him and, and he says something like, oh, well, yes, why don't you get fixed up first, you get well, and then you come and see me. It makes no sense, right? 
The job of a doctor, the job of a physician is to give you antibiotics, to reset your leg, to, I guess, attach your foot back together, if that's even possible, right? It's to do those things. And Jesus literally is considered to be the great physician. Here's what he says. He says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He did not come here so that the clean can be in great community with him. Because newsflash, none of us are clean. And so we can come to him just as we are. So whatever circumstances, whatever like, I'm not, I can't do this, come to Jesus as you are. That's how he wants it. That's how he likes it. That is the gospel. Because he accepts all in that way. There's open seating at the cross where he wants us to come in, put our faith in him like this guy did, to walk in and confess, I know you can do it because you are God. You are a savior. I'm asking, will you do it? If you're willing, I believe that you can. The greatest part about the gospel, you guys, is that he's willing. He is willing to help us. (laughs) We don't have to get cleaned up to see him. Verse 41. Moved with compassion... Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he said. Be clean. And instantly, the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. Few, uh, few things to notice here. One is the phrase, uh, moved with compassion. If you want to know what Jesus is like, if you've ever wondered what Jesus is like, this is what Jesus is like. He was moved with compassion to do something. I heard this great quote. It goes like this. True compassion means not only feeling another's pain, which that's a big thing right now, feeling another's pain, but also being moved to help relieve it. Another way to say that is true compassion takes action. You guys, that's awesome right there. True compassion takes action. It's more than pity. It's more than feeling bad for somebody. It's more than feeling sorry for their circumstances. True compassion takes action. A friend of mine who goes here named David Piscatelli was called in for jury duty (laughs) a couple weeks ago. And he was a long trial. It was a very difficult trial. Basically, to put it in the best way I can, it was a parent's worst nightmare type trial. And so David sits in this thing. I I can't remember. It was like a week or two weeks or something like that. It was going on and on, and it was very difficult, and there was division among the jury and whatnot. And he basically reached out to us and said, hey, will you pray for this? Justice is clear, but it's just not going the right way. And eventually, on the very last day, um, justice was served in, in, the, in the right way that it was. I'm not going to go into the details, but it was served. What I find absolutely amazing about this scenario was what David did next. He didn't just stop right there. He was moved with compassion. Like Jesus, he wanted to help meet needs. He knew that for this mom to come in to this trial, um, she had to take off work, and she was not going to be able to be there to, you know, to, to, to pay for rent. The son involved in this situation, he was having a birthday and they had no money for presents. And so what David did is he decided to sacrifice some of his own finances to go there, but he also got a hold of us at the church and he basically said, can we help? And so we helped meet their rent and all of their, um, you know, some food and some, um, and, and, and other like utilities and things of that nature and birthday party stuff, tried to help take care of it. These guys live in Renton, we'll never see them. I don't even think they know about our church and that's 
fine. But what I loved is that one of our members, one of our core people were moved to do something. True compassion takes action, and he took action. And not only I know it was compassion in that process, because I went to his house just shortly after the trial ended, had to pick something up when I was there, and I stood in his driveway and talked to him and his wife, and he literally, as he's recounting, because he could finally tell me about the trial, um, could not make it through the conversation. We had to take stops for him to breathe, for him to wipe the tears from his eyes to get the words out. He was truly moved, and not only moved to compassion, to, he wanted to do something about it, and he did. And I love that, you guys. That's what it's about. Jesus took compassion on this guy, and he didn't just stop there. What he did is, probably the biggest word in that is he touched him, right? Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. Touch is so powerful, Touch is super powerful. Psychologists tell us that if you are not touched for a long period of time or babies are not touched or held for a long period of time, it really messes you up. Like it messes you up big time. In your mind, you are prone more to depression and aggression and anxiety and a whole bunch of other stuff if you don't experience physical, physical touch. What I love about Jesus was that he chose to touch him. He didn't have to catch this. He didn't have to touch him to heal him. He chose to. Because Jesus is like the master of healing people in a variety of ways, right? He spits on the ground, makes mud, sticks it on their face. Like that's one way that he did it. Then he could see. Uh, My favorite one is when he just spit directly on the guy's face. And then then he could see. Uh, Jesus obviously has something going on with spit and healing. So um, he said once that, hey, just go. Your servant is healed. You just, I just said the word kind of a thing. Jesus could heal in a variety of different ways. He could have done whatever he wanted, but what did he choose to do in this particular case? And what did all the gospel accounts record that he did? He touched him. He knew that his need was more than just the physical, it was the emotional. And he probably hadn't been touched for years. And so for Jesus to reach down and to touch him as he's begging there, That's amazing that God not only knows our needs on the outside, he knows our needs on the inside. He touches us in our area of woundedness. And Jesus touched this guy. And instantly, the Bible says, it says, be clean. And instantly, the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. I try to picture what that actually looked like, right? He's on his knees. Jesus is right there. Luke tells us that he's full of leprosy. So he's gone down this. He's probably missing fingers and toes and, you know, and skin is just probably very difficult. And it was instant, you guys. And because we have access to all this movies and CGI, it probably isn't as powerful if you were to see it. But in live time, to watch somebody's skin become clean or fingers to grow back because it was instant. That's pretty darn impressive. That is amazing. So you can see why the guy reacted in the way that he reacted. Here's what it says, verse 43. Then Jesus sent him away. And how did he send him away? With a strong warning. Don't tell anyone about this, about this miraculous healing that just took place. But go, show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. 
From that verse, two passages pop out to me, or two questions, if you will, um, pop out to me. One, why did Jesus send him away? Why did he send him to a priest? I'll just give you the short answer for this. Jesus sent him away to be restored. That's why he sent him away. In order for someone who was ceremonially unclean, which you would have been if you had leprosy, um, you had to go to a priest to get two thumbs up through a process that would allow you to enter back into society. So he had to go and he had to get the thumbs up from the priest. Jesus is saying, go there. If you want to know about it, you can literally read about this ceremony, this ritual. It's in Leviticus 14. It's crazy. It's an eight-day ceremony with crazy, dizzying details that go throughout. You could take the standard track, which if you had money, or the poor man's track. You had your choice. And you could, there's sacrificing of lambs and birds, and there's oil, flour, water. You shave all your hair, including your eyebrows, it says. Um, then it gets really weird because you've got to put blood, sacrifice blood on your right earlobe, your right hand, and your big toe of your right foot. And you think I'm making this up, but it's right in the Bible. <laughs> Aren't you so thankful that we're not a part of the sacrificial system anymore? Jesus paid that sacrifice once and for all, so we don't have to have blood on our earlobe and our hand and our big toe. Like, that's crazy stuff right there. I'm so thankful for that. But the reason Jesus sent him away, because you think, well, that's harsh. He sends him to go to the priest. Why a priest? It was so he could be fully restored, not just in his body, but restored into society. And then he would have then been restored to his family. How crazy would that be? Honey, I'm home, you know? That's insane. All right, so the second question on that is, why the strong warning to be silent? Why the strong warning? Because Jesus says, do not tell anyone about this. A couple theories on this, they kind of all mash together. The basic idea that most theologians believe is that um, they, Jesus didn't want his teaching ministry to be hindered by his healing ministry. And he was, didn't want to run out of time. And so he didn't want to die prematurely before he got all of the teaching. He did all the things and said all the things he needed to say before he actually was killed. So if he caused a lot of a ruckus, it said he couldn't even enter a town publicly after that, right? He couldn't go back into the town publicly because he, this guy disobeyed what he had to say. I'm a rule follower to a degree, okay? To a degree. My wife is a real rule follower. You know, ABC, got to do it for sure. It says so. Follow the letter of the law. Um, I stretch that a little bit, um, but if Jesus healed me from leprosy and my fingers grew back and I had toes again and maybe I got a nose that popped out, right? I'm gonna listen to what he has to say. If he says, don't tell anybody about this, I truly am not going to tell anybody about this because I'm gonna go right to the priest and I'm gonna follow line item by line item. Not this guy, not this guy. Verse 45, here's what it said. Instead, the man went out and began to talk freely proclaiming to everyone what had happened. As a result, here's the bad news, Jesus could no longer enter a town publicly, but stayed outside, and like literally with the outsiders, in lonely places, yet people from everywhere kept coming to him. This is a bummer for Jesus. It obviously hindered his ministry to a degree, it's a reason that God gives us instructions to do something or not to do something. This guy blatantly did not listen. But I don't want you to miss this. Um, I, I use the word unrestrainable excitement. This guy had a pure, unrestrainable excitement. 
he spoke up, disobeyed Jesus, and shared what happened with everyone because he simply could not contain it. Right? Have you ever been in a situation like that where you simply could not contain it? We talk about what impacts us. That's the principle. We talk about what impacts us. I know this. I do it. You do it. We all do it. Uh, this Earlier this year, if you see like a good movie, right, you got to tell everybody about it. Infinity Wars came out at the beginning of the summer. And if you know what I'm talking about, right, this is insane. Only a few people know what I'm talking about. The nerds in the audience know what I'm talking about. I know it's most of you because that movie was like the highest grossing movie in history almost. It almost surpassed Force Awakens. I know I'm a nerd, okay? I get it. But truly, this movie was huge and everybody was talking about it and talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. Why? Because it impacted them. You did not expect that ending. Not after 10 years of building the Marvel Universe did you expect that type of ending. It was crazy. And I know some people are shaking their head. I have no idea what you're talking about, Jake. <laughs> so that's fine. But you will know this. How about when you met the person, that person, that special person for the very first time? You could not contain the impact that you had. You like, might have been like, well, I'm never, I'm never going to fall in love. I'm never going to, you know, I'm just going to be single for the rest of my life. It's just going to be when hell freezes over. All of a sudden, whoa, hell just freezed over. Look at her go by. Like, you just, you... You find the one. She's special. She's amazing. Ladies, it's the same thing for you guys. You find this guy. You meet him. You've got to tell everyone. You have to tell everyone. You won't believe this. He's so perfect. He baked me these cookies right in between his quiet time and working out. He's amazing. So, and we talk about what impacts us. And if you meet the right person and it impacts you in that way, we talk about it. It's the same with Jesus, right? Oh, dang. Why don't we talk about Jesus? Why don't we talk about Jesus? We could talk about movies. We can talk about the love of our life. Why don't we talk about Jesus like that? If anyone has had an impact on our life, it's him. When you have a true encounter with Jesus, you can't contain yourself. It is an irrestrainable, unrestrainable excitement. And I would venture to say, and probably won't be popular for saying it, but maybe the reason that some of us don't share or most of us don't share is that we never had an authentic encounter with Jesus. Or you forgot about it. You forgot about it. Time has passed. We talk about what impacts us. Nobody in this universe has impacted us more, if you know Jesus, more than him on an eternal level. We should be screaming his name from the top of our lungs. Now here's the thing, I get it, it's not popular. It is not popular to talk about Jesus in this day and age, especially in this culture, especially in this region, you will be mocked for it. I told someone the other day when they asked me what I did for a living, I said, a pastor. When I first started, that was like, oh man, what an honor. Now I was like, why? <laughs> you know? Like he looked at me with this confused look, like people still do that? It was crazy. That was nuts. We talk about what impacts us. We should be talking a whole heck of a lot about Jesus, even if we have to risk it. I'll close with this example. As a communicator, 
as somebody who stands up and teaches, you're supposed to share failure stories. That's like the general rule. Because when you share failure stories with your audience, they relate to you better. If you share success stories, um, they're not going to relate in that way. But I'm going to this time risk it and share one time I think I got it right. Okay? This is one time in my life where I feel like I did this thing right. I got one. And so it happened when I was back at Overlake. That's when it started. It's a difficult situation. I don't know how else to say it. I was with this guy. We were both in youth ministry. I didn't know him that well. We were acquaintances. Um, but he was later convicted of um, child molestation. Very difficult. Terrible. 1,000% terrible in that situation. And uh, I didn't know him very well. And I just remember I was driving through Bellevue and um, we hadn't, you know, we were acquaintances, but I recognized him on the side of the road. This is about two weeks after this started to come out um, and, and whatnot. And I saw him on the side of the road, and I said, hello, and he ignored me. And then I pulled my car over right in front of him. I said, hello, he ignored me. I'm like, dude, I know it's you. Hello, how are you doing? He had like a hood over his head and, and whatnot, and he was just hiding. He was trying to hide. He was very shamed, obviously. He knows what he did was wrong, and it was terrible. Um, the victim was receiving a whole bunch of care from a whole bunch of different people, which is great. That's what it needed to be. But he was ostracized from the church. There was nobody. Nobody was reaching out to him. I didn't realize I was the only one who had a chance to have a connection with him. And so through that, I felt like God asked me to, uh, to minister to him through this process. I don't agree with what he did. In fact, it kills me to think what he did. He has since repented in a huge way. He has since, like, he did his jail time. He went to jail. He was convicted, went to jail, spent time in jail. When he got out of jail, nobody was there to greet him. I don't even think his family was there to greet him. And so I decided, let's try to help minister back to him. So I was gonna put a barbecue together at my house to have him and some of his closest friends that he knew to come over. Um, To just, I, I know it's, I wanted to celebrate his repentance and his faith and walking forward in that. And what was crazy is, you guys, I asked asked a handful of people. Nobody came. Nobody wanted to come. Everyone declined coming to that. So we ended up having the barbecue together, just me and him. And throughout the years, I have gone to movies with him. I have been in his wedding. We've done lunches, dinners, I consider him to be a friend. And again, I've never seen a man repent so 360 in my life um, than I have seen him. He is now married with a child of his own and trying to find his way through life. But still, even to this day, that title of child molestation, those charges, they don't go away. So in every neighborhood he goes in, he's ostracized still as an outsider and put to the outside, and, um, and even he's tried to do businesses, and people have attacked his businesses, even though I know major, 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 but he's done everything in his power, and his, I mean, we put him on an, to another church, we tried to connect, I mean, he has walked through every hoop that he could possibly walk through to be restored in that way, but he was an outsider, and when I started to let people know that we're trying to minister to him or have people come along and try to help. Um, I even got ostracized for it. 
What are you doing? Why would you associate with him? And, uh, and even I had meetings at the church about it. Um, it was crazy. Again, I'm not saying what this guy, I'm saying over and over again, this is not, I don't, I don't accept what he did. I don't land on that side. But I do appreciate that God's grace is bigger and deeper than we could far ever imagine. And he was on the outside, the far, far outside. God brought him back into the inner circle. I got to be a small part of that process. But it is worth it, my friends. When you see somebody on the outside, and if, I can't think of much more than what he was when it goes to the outside, to go out to there and to reach out and to care for them and to love them and to love the unlovable and to love those who are truly in pain. That's what we're supposed to do. It's, in order to do that, you guys, this is my last point, you have to risk rejection. You have to do it. I was rejected by other people for making that move. You will be rejected by people for sharing Christ's name. If you share the gospel, if you go and reach out to the outsiders, you will be rejected. Christ says that's the case. It happened to Jesus, it happened to his disciples, it happened to believers, and they risked their lives to do so. It is not popular at all to follow Christ and to proclaim Christ's greatness these days, but it's absolutely mission critical. And it's what he asked us to do. It's what he modeled for us to do, to go and to love outsiders by inviting them in. They need to hear the good news. And you know what? They need to hear it from you. They need to hear it from you. So truly in this series, in this church, Sundays, this is not what it's about. This is a place where we can come in and prepare to do the real ministry of wherever you're going out into the world. And whatever lives you touch, you are the disciples. They're not going to be changed by some clever message that I put together. They're going to be changed by the authentic relationship that you have and the love that you share them. That is what it means to go to the outsiders. I want us to do that with all my heart. That's why this church was established. I want to do that with you. Let's pray.